Welcome to Interviews with Innocence, a podcast about spirituality, consciousness, and exploring the wisdom our children bring into this world. I believe that our very young children are our greatest teachers. After all, they're the masters of living in the present moment, bubbling in unconditional love, enjoying the messiness of life, and curious about the universe in all its dimensions. The pure essence that young children exhibit lives within all of us. My hope is that these interviews will help us discover, embrace, and connect with the sacred core of childhood that resides within each of our hearts. I am your host, Marla Hughes. Today, before I introduce poet Art Good Times, I would like to read an essay by Cleary Vaughn Lee, Executive Director of the Global Oneness Project. The title of her essay, and I'm just going to read the very beginning of it and post the whole essay on my blog on my website. It's titled Doorways to Our Childhood Selves. And it's about the book, The Little Prince, written by Antoine de Saint-Exprès. You may know this story. It begins with a pilot who crashes his plane in the Sahara Desert. Stranded for eight days, the pilot meets a little boy, a prince, who asks him to draw a sheep. The boy has come from another planet, a small, distant asteroid called B612, no bigger than a house. He is the sole inhabitant, a dedicated steward of three volcanoes, some valleys and a rose that he longs to protect. Conflicted over the rose's vanity and the contradictory nature, the boy embarks on a journey with the help of migratory birds. He departs his asteroid and visits six nearby planets to learn about life in the universe. The Little Prince, written by Antoine de Saint-Exprès and published in 1943, is more than a philosophical tale. It is a timeless story about a grown-up who encounters his inner child. In a quest for a meaningful life, he encounters this child in the form of a prince who wishes to be of service to something bigger than himself. This mystical journey reveals the essence of what it means to live, including its secrets and wisdom, if we know how to listen. In quotes, the eyes are blind, one must look with the heart. If you haven't read the story, it just might stir something within you. The Little Prince offers a world beyond ourselves. St. Expere beautifully illustrates the longing we have within ourselves to explore unknown territories and to trust our instinctual nature. Our moral selves are summoned to the page. Like many stories we read during our young lives, this story offers a unique opening into life, full of possibility, sorrow, and lessons to be learned. A story can captivate both our present selves and the selves we would like to become. And without further ado, I would like to introduce Art Good Times. Today, I'm really excited to have Art Good Times on the program. Art is a longtime resident of 
well, I guess Norwood and Telluride, Colorado, these adorable little mountain towns. And that's where we are right now. It's snowing outside. Sure. And and art is just, I we were just getting to know one another, but I'm just so intrigued by his story and his work. So, so welcome to the program, Art. Thank you, Marla. It's so a pleasure great, to be here. So great to have you here. So why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Oh my gosh. Well, um, I, I'm, a, I'm a poet. And so poetry has been my life. A poem in Greek means to make. And so I'm a maker, creative person. Uh, but I started out as a pretty traditionalist uh, Catholic uh, son, Italian-American family, in, uh, growing up in San Francisco and then down the peninsula, the suburbs, um, in, the, in the 50s and the 60s. Went to seminary. I was very religious and uh, spent seven years studying to be a Roman Catholic priest. I have a lot of friends who are priests or, or ex-seminarians. And then uh, when I left uh, the seminary, I, I, my brother died. And that was kind of a crisis of faith that made me really rethink what I was doing. And so I ended up taking a year off because it was Vietnam days in those days in the draft. I took a year as a VISTA volunteer. And so I ended up on a pro-Indian reservation in Montana and learned a lot, realized that I, I lived on the West Coast, but I didn't live in the West. The West was really a different place. And, uh, I learned that I, I kind of liked the West. It was wide open. People were not quite so uptight with each other. Although they could be very mean, uh, they also could be very nice. It was a really interesting bifurcation, but I spent a year and a half there on the reservation and then uh, Went back to San Francisco in the summer of love um, and had a delayed adolescence reaction to the Grateful Dead and acid and everything else that was going on there. Got my, uh, finished my degree in English at San Francisco State uh, during the riots <laughs> and uh, went to UC Berkeley Night School and became a, a, a teacher with a lifetime certificate in teaching for preschool and, uh, and for adult education which I haven't used ever since. Yes. Well, I know the children though, you did, you, you did work with them at Vista, right? Correct. Yeah. That was yes. part of that. That was definitely Head Start was uh, just starting in those days. And so yeah. I used to go and uh, play music for Head Start, sing songs. Nice. And that got me into the whole world of preschool education. And when I went to San Francisco state, I got a job because I needed money um, working in a preschool, a Jewish community center made friends with teachers and ended up having a career in preschool education for the next 10 years. Wonderful. <laughs> Did, um, I know you mentioned before we um, started the record button, you talked about that you loved the preschool children, the magic and mystery of childhood. Can you just elaborate on that a little bit? Oh my gosh. You know, I, I'd always loved having, being a babysitter. I loved, I had two brothers. And so we were a family. I had some uh, nephews we played with, nieces. And so I, I really loved families. And I remember reading Cheaper for the Dozen and thinking, oh, I want a whole baseball team. Yes. <laughs> uh, and then as I got older, I you know, went to seminary. I wasn't going to have any children. And then all of a sudden left the seminary. And uh, suddenly I, the first woman I made love with was pregnant. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'd be getting married. I'm a Catholic boy. She was Jewish. It was very interesting. We lasted for a year and we got divorced by the same judge and we had champagne both times. She had a miscarriage, so we didn't have to do children then. Oh, right. But I've loved children. So 
I, I, when I started working with them, it was really magic to spend a day in that space where everything's possible. And the only boundaries are the ones outside of yourself. There's really no interior boundaries here. You, you can go in any direction and as far as you want, as far until somebody stops you. And that was our job. Preschool was often stopping you, providing the outer boundaries to whatever liveliness we could, we could induce inside those boundaries. <laughs> I know you mentioned that in seminary that you were, um, became really intrigued with poetry. I did. And I'd like for you to tell us about that and how, if you incorporated that into the work you, you did with children. Yeah, you know, uh, the, the whole magic, you know, Joseph Chilton Pierce Magic, the child, it was that magical mindset that you could do almost anything. You could sing a song. So we'd have a story time, we'd have a song time. When I got to be in charge, I would set up the gym, all the gym toys in a new configuration every morning. So the kids would walk in and be a new arrangement and they'd have to try new skills of, of balance and, and climbing. And, and that was my way of like welcoming, welcoming them and opening the world up for them to the magic of the moment. But again, we were inside a wall classroom and you know we had walls on the outside. And, and I realized after teaching both in San Francisco and actually I taught back East in New Haven, Connecticut, and I uh, had experiences in all different kinds of areas. And I, and I really found if you made a, a safe space with clear boundaries, and when the kids bounced up against them, you had consequence so that somehow, you know, you, you, you didn't let them transgress those boundaries freely. They got to, they were put on notice that that was not right. They, but within that place, there was all this freedom. And I realized that freedom is really a process of understanding constraint as much as it is understanding freedom. It's why I, I, I really like the uh, Akwesasne people of upstate New York uh, the Haudenosaunee News was a big uh, a journal that I used to get back in the 60s. And they talked about the fact we have a Bill of Rights, we have no Bill of Responsibilities. Right. <laughs> and so what I felt like in preschool was we set the external boundaries and we, 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 we made it so they could be free within there. And that freedom was there. But beyond that boundary, there was something they bounced up against that they learned that there was a, a limit to whatever freedoms they had. And so they began to internalize uh, those limits. And I think that was the teaching that I, one of the most powerful teachings of preschool life, because I had great teachers. They, uh, Thelma Harms taught at Berkeley and I really loved her. She went to North Carolina, uh, Chapel Hill. She was a, a wonderful expert. She really believed in using all the different strategies because people sometimes they're, you know, um, they're really into, uh, uh, freedom and uh, uh, different kinds of uh, uh, permissive uh, education. Sometimes they're into real strict um, uh, and there's all these different schools, yes. but she would draw on all of them and say, what you do is you look at the child and you would see what they need and respond to them in kind with whatever system that seemed to work for them, which was really, I thought the smart way of using all of these wonderful different paradigms because you know, um, you can extinguish behavior um, by punishing people. It works. Yeah. If you want to punish somebody, that works. So there is times when if somebody transgresses a boundary and does it repeatedly, there is a punishment. They have timeout or, you know, 
they get, you know, they, they can't go out on, a, on something, but there is some consequence. So that trauma, which when you look at indigenous people cross-culturally, you find that whenever they had ceremonies or rituals, there was some induced trauma as part of that. Why? Because we learn when we have painful challenges, yes. painful challenges that we have to overcome are very important in our lives. Just like I do basket weaving, mistakes are very important. I learn new things every time I make a mistake. It's a new pathway and opening. So understanding all those things, I found working with children wonderful, but at the same time, um, I felt like there were boundaries and limits that were real important to put on them that permissiveness sometimes uh, doesn't work. If you had a permissive child, and I had all, I worked in a preschool for a continuation of high school in San Francisco. So I had Vietnamese, South American, Persian. We had all kinds of people, all kinds of parents, all kinds of systems. And I was, I was the director. So I had to understand. I remember one time these Vietnamese children came. Their parents had just gone into the continuation high school. They came and they refused to go inside. They sat on the stairs and just bawled and cried. And so I went outside and just sat there. I, I, this was more important than anything I had to do. I mean, everybody else could take care of stuff. Inside. So sat with them for half hour, slowly got them to, you know, move inside. And when they started drawing pictures, they drew pictures of bombs falling from planes. Oh, so wow. you can imagine what their lives were like. So I think Thelma was really magical for me in teaching us to watch the children and use this, the, the kinds of of different skill sets, Summerhill, you know, there's all these different kinds of teachings. Whatever it is, match it to the child. If they come from a permissive home, give them strict boundaries. Yes. When they come from a real strict home, let them run free. And, and you know, as much as you could. So um, yeah. that, that was sort of the way we, we, work, we work with kids. That was um, some of what, some of that philosophy was um, where my kids went to school, Rudolf Steiner. Steiner schools, yes, yes. I love Steiner schools, yeah. yeah. Waldorf school. Waldorf, you bet. Well, let's segue a little bit and talk about, I know um, when you came to, you went to hate Ashbury and, <laughs> and you, you experimented some um, with entheogens or psychedelics yeah. and I really, I've had a few people on to talk about um, psychedelics because I'm so interested in all the research that's going on at the major universities and what they're finding with, with helping PTSD oh and, and depression oh and anxiety and all those things. Yeah. So could you just tell us a little bit, you don't have to tell us too much about the <laughs> heavy farting, but tell us a little bit what, what, they taught you how they changed you and how you feel like they will, what the implication will be for the world world now. Well, I, I was really surprised when I came to Colorado because I had been a member of the Mycological Society that had been interested in mushrooms uh, previous to my coming here. And uh, I got a job right away as the director of the Arts Council in Telluride. And, uh, when I got this phone call from this doctor, one that said he wanted to have a conference on mushrooms and did I know anybody who could help him? And I'm like, oh my God, yes, me. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> and so, uh, because I had been interested in, in mushrooms from a mycological viewpoint, uh, edibles particularly, we used to gather oyster mushrooms and uh, um, 
uh, all these different kinds in San Francisco. I'd go out on, on, on forays with the mycological club. And I learned different kinds of mushrooms that were safe to eat and ones that weren't. So, you, you know, you didn't pick them. So I, I was pretty, not real knowledgeable, but I, I had some experience. So when they came here, I was totally blown away. They had split off this group, which was Dr. Salzman, Andrew Weil, Dr. Weil, yes. um, uh, Gary Linkoff, the mycologist, and Paul Stamets, who's pretty well known these days. Uh, they were all, all these guys had split off from another conference that had been set up by the uh, uh, Beth Israel Hospital to talk about mushrooms from the toxicity side of it. But they didn't want to talk about anything else. Yes. And these guys all wanted to talk about something else. They want to talk about medicinal. They wanted to talk about edible. They want to talk about theogenic. They wanted to talk about restoration. They want to talk about all the facets because it was just when they came here in 1980s, 1979, 1980, that they separated mycology from bi biology, from botany. It had always been under the botany department, mm -hmm. but actually it's a separate kingdom. I don't say kingdom. I say kingdom because it's a kin. I don't like kings. I'm not into kings, but I am into kin. And I think they're all part of our kin. So I just did a book called Kinship with the Center for Humans and Nature. And I have a poem in there about, about this very issue. But I, the, the fungi were, were, were not plants. They were animals. They were their own kingdom. Wow. And they're actually closer to animals than they are to plants. And yet they were in the botany department. So when we started the Mushroom Festival, tell you right, it was just at this change of understanding how wide aspect mushrooms which usually got a page or two of books if anything in the textbook but turned out they had all these purposes and uses and we learned about you know i'd already known a bit about the edibility so i, I around here we have great edibles yes I, I knew a little bit about medicinal not too much i was learning and and i and of course through the the 60s in san francisco i, I knew a lot about <laughs> theogens i had tried all, all, most of them uh, and I found, you know, different ones I liked and different ones that weren't as good. And, I, and I, we were we were the 60s experimental beta testing uh, generation. So now we have Michael Pollan, who writes his wonderful book, starting out scared to drop acid. And it's like for those of us, we call ourselves psychonauts. Uh, like an Argonauts. Yes. So psychonauts are people who've tried a lot of different substances for personal self-discovery. We, we don't do it necessarily in the therapeutic, although oftentimes we did, but sometimes not. And sometimes had good and bad experiences. But for us, it was exploring and opening. And just like Michael says in his book, it shatters your ego. So if you have these rigid structures, and of course we build up rigid ego structures all through our childhood and adolescence and even young adulthood, we built up all of these stories about ourselves. My story is not that I'm a failed priest, which is one story that some people still tell because they never they, they, they never left leaving the seminary. But uh, my story was I'm a poet and, and I traveled around the country as a poet. So I told myself the story. I became the story. That's the ego structure I had built. Drugs shatter all that. And you suddenly have to deal with what do you want to bring back and what is of no use to you anymore? And so Christianity was of no use to any for me. But poetry was great use and marrying people was a great use. So I became a universal life minister, not because I wanted to have a church, but because I love marrying people. It was really fun. Yes. I like officiating and bringing people together and uh, blessing their union. I think that's a lovely thing. So I, I still was able to use stuff, 
from the seminar. And I love the fact that I attended the seminar. I learned a lot about spirituality, things I like and things I didn't like. I moved into the, the seminary and then out of the seminary, but I brought things with me and I moved into the hate, but I moved out of the hate. I moved to Colorado. I moved to start my own uh, family and I really didn't want to be in a city anymore, even though San Francisco is a lovely city uh, and it has a wonderful movement. It still is a city and I wanted to be in the country. I wanted to be in the West that I remembered from Montana. Yes. And I ended up in Colorado. I looked at Alaska, I looked at Maine, and I ended up in Colorado. Well, that's a pretty, pretty <laughs> special place. So, Art, do you have um, a story you could tell us about an experience you had with mushrooms that showed you that maybe Christianity wasn't your thing anymore, but poetry was? And You know, it's interesting. It wasn't really... Well, I guess it was a little bit. So um, in, in, when I came to Colorado, I ended up hooking up with a group called uh, the Uniaudi Vegetal. It's a, a, it's a, a, a British, uh, a Brazilian cult that takes ayahuasca in a ritual way. Right. They have brought their church to the United States and uh, they went to the Supreme Court and got the right to bring their hallucinogen into the country for their religion. I remember once, and when you're in ayahuasca, it's an entheogen. Uh, it's uh, my my friends, my my shaman, shamanic friends tell me that it's a feminine energy, like San Pedro is a masculine energy, and that um, it's oftentimes the 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 most powerful shamans that I've experienced have been women, and the women who who uh, guide you in ayahuasca, I think, are 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 amazing. Uh, the Udave is, is kind of a masculine cult. It's a sky god religion. It takes a, a minor figure from the Christian pantheon, Solomon, and makes him a major figure in their religion. Um, it, it's beautiful in that there are so many people in Brazilian society from the very top generals and politicians to the very bottom, taxi cab drivers and uh, uh, Oh, well, I can't remember. There's a name, Bucolo or something. There's a name in Portuguese for some of the, the peasant kind of people right. living in the countryside. Right. And, uh, and so the, they were, it was a very egalitarian kind of uh, energy. You were all one in the nucleo when you took ayahuasca and, and went through that experience. You did it with a group. You did it with a, a person in charge, a mestre. And you, and, and you did it with uh, some music and with some talking so that you never lost your sense of self like you can with mushrooms or ayahuasca, I mean with uh, mushrooms or uh, acid or mush, um, uh, uh, cactus, uh, frogs, there's all these different things where you're lost. Right. I mean, your, your ego is so shattered, you're not sure where you are even sometimes. So uh, that, that can't happen, which is why they always tell you, and we were always, it was drummed into us in the very first set and setting. It's so important when you take any kind of mind altering substances, First thing is have a guide, have somebody with you who uh, isn't under the influence, who you trust deeply, who can just lead you out of any problems that occur. And sometimes things you'll hear, I remember one time hearing airplanes in the sky out in the wilderness and thinking it was a world war going on when it was just a passing plane. But my reality became so distorted. I went off in these rabbit holes, just like Alice. Uh, and so uh, you need somebody to pull you back. And then. It's nice. I love doing it outdoors because I love the wild. Not everybody loves the wild. Maybe you, if, if, if you're not as comfortable in the wild, then maybe it's better to do it in, a, in your own home 
in a nice, you know, which is the therapeutic model they're doing now is they're making very much a very home style kind of place to be in and then a guide to help you. And I think that therapeutic model is really wise for beginners. People who are just very intrigued, including myself, and I'm personally familiar with ayahuasca, but I'm talking more about psilocybin now. Yeah. Um, that want to maybe get off an antidepressive or yeah. want to, you know, maybe we're venturing into microdosing now, but what do you, number one, why would people want to try this? Or what do you think usually why they want to try it? And secondly, how do you think it can benefit them? Well, again, I think uh, Michael gave us a wonderful uh, blueprint for people that are older and uh, who the psychedelic revolution passed them by maybe. Right. And they uh, now they're in this other place and they're not sure they want to go crazy like some of the kids did. Yes. And I think Michael was very aware of that, had those same feelings and found a very safe way to begin. I always say, if you're going to do psychedelics, start with, I think, my favorite, MDMA. It's a very lovely, not pure MDMA, not the party drug, although you can party on it, but it's not about partying so much as it's really an opening of the heart. Your heart opens wide open. In that opening, like I was with a friend and her heart opened wide, but she didn't pay any attention to herself, but she got sunburned and had a sunburn for weeks afterwards. So it's, uh, you do lose yourself a bit in, you become almost obsessed with uh, interpersonal relationships mostly with humans, but sometimes with other things in the, in the environment because everything is alive. So the thing about MDMA is that it's a really soft and loving and it's not everybody has the same kind of experience, but it's a gentler kind of uh, awakening. I think it's really important if you're gonna experiment like this, um, find a safe, kind of way to do it. If you, if you don't have knowledgeable people in your circle, there are some wonderful groups out there now that are offering. You can go to Jamaica and take uh, an, uh, mushrooms. Uh, I think uh, Chad has, has, has a whole group of people down there um, from the Mushroom Festival uh, in South Carolina. And he has a group that goes down. There's a group from Colorado that goes down because in Jamaica, it's not illegal. And so you can have a legal uh, mushroom experience if you wanted. Uh, down there. And, you know, people go down to Peru and Brazil for ayahuasca. You can actually do ayahuasca here in this country now, legal. So uh, it, there's some, there's some interesting choices. What you don't want to do is probably do what I did, which isn't, I don't think bad, but just dangerous. Yes. So what do you think the implications are with this um, rise in interest with with psychedelics. Well, that was the thing. Uh, when, when Manny, Dr. Salzman, and Andy Weil, and, and Paul, and Gary started this conference, which became a festival, they were right from the beginning. This was, this was, this was Dr. Salzman, Manny's mantra. Uh, mushrooms are medicine. Yes. They are medicine. Now, we can treat them as illegal substances. We can treat them as sacred objects, or we can treat them as medicine. We have different paradigms that we could put them into. He was for putting it out of law enforcement, putting it into the, the health perspective mm. and using them in a therapeutic way. 
This was what Manny, his whole, his whole purpose in setting up the Telluride Mushroom Conference, which became the festival 40 years ago, was treating mushrooms as medicine. Wow, 40 years 40 ago. 40 years ago. And so now we just begin to see uh, the society moving in that direction. So it's funny for those of us who have been tracking this for so long that it took this long for people to get it. But, uh, and, you know, uh, come on, uh, uh, Michael, uh, just drop some acid, stop, stop pussyfooting around. But he was mirroring what needed to be done for people that were newbies. And I thought that was brilliant right. because he was a really smart person. He understood how to popularize something that was forbidden. So he was a good bridge from the verboten energy of the 50s and 60s to what we're seeing now, which is an explosion of interest all over the world. All over the world. And that is the book, How to Change Your Mind. Is that Michael Poland you're talking about? Yeah, How to Change or Your that's Mind. that's the book. Yeah, 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 that was the book that, that was, uh, it was the best um, beginner's how-to. Right. Right. I mean, we had Paul Stamets saying how mushrooms are going to save the world and making all these incredible claims, most of which were true. And uh, uh, but he he was he was way over the head of most people. Right. It's like, how do I do it? How do I, I start? Wanna, yeah. I just want to. How do I just start? So Paul, yeah. I mean, Michael took us right to the beginning, made it easy for people to start. So now, hopefully, they will do it in a self-controlled. I think would be the best. Uh, therapeutic. If you want to go the medical or you want to go the professional, there's there's other choices out there right. you can make. Yes. And you don't have to do it in ignorance. Because yes. I, I there were people lost on the way who did them, you know, and, and didn't have a good experience. Right. Lost their lives even. So let's um, segue again a bit and talk about your poetry, your passion. For sonnet heik olim meminise yuvabe. That's a little bit of Virgil, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it was beautiful. <laughs> so how do you see poetry as, well, of course it's a spiritual, uh, what's, what is the word I even wanna use? Practice. Practice. So, but just, just elaborate on that a little bit, how it is for you. So uh, yeah, I, I'm a disciple of Dolores LaChapelle, La lived over in Silverton. She was a, a wisdom teacher, a skier, a climber, first ascents in Canada, It's in the Ski Hall of Fame, uh, an amazing woman. And I met her in her 60s when she was quite well formed by that time. And uh, she was already uh, beginning talking about the way of the mountain, which was her practice. And uh, it was basically animism, believing everything is alive. We call it deep ecology, but that's just a new fancy name for a very old practice, which is seeing everything. Uh, this is stone, it's beautiful. It, 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 it exudes beauty and uh, it's alive. And if you look at the quantum mechanics of it, indeed, the electrons are moving and turning and spinning. And it's not what we perceive of as solid object, neutral, hard, dead. That's not the way we see the world. That's not how I see it when I'm in an altered state. Right. When I'm in an altered state, I see everything as alive often. And so I, I begin to see as a quantum physicist would see. Actually, I used to go to a talk, it was a Bohmian dialogue. Uh, Bohm had a way of setting up knowledgeable people in the center of a group and then an outside group of watchers. And they called it a Bohmian dialogue because you'd listen to the people in the center. And down the sea people, down in Santa Fe had uh, uh, these conferences, uh, the language of spirituality. And they would have quantum physicists, indigenous elders, 
and Worfian linguists in the middle. Worfian, Worf, the, the, the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis in linguistics suggests that when we say things, we make them come alive. When I say I'm a poet, the more times I say I'm a poet, the more I am a poet. Yes. I create my world by speaking it. That's what a poem, that's what a poem is about. It's about speaking the world, your vision of the world. And you know, I had a workshop in the seminary. My only art training was with, with Karita Kent, who was Sister Karita for many years, a wonderful uh, muralist sculptor person. Uh, she has worked in the museum, San Francisco Museum of Art. She, she's a really, was a fine artist. She said that yeah, the poets of our age are in filmmaking. That's our, mm -hmm. that's our poetry. But the catch is in order to do that, you have to embed yourself in capitalism and assemble enough capital in order to make a film. Right. And if you don't know how to do that, if you aren't experienced in capitalism, if you don't have a business background, chances are you will never make your poetry. But with poetry, poetry as we know it, all you gotta do is speak. It's just a voice. And when you speak, you are in a sense creating the world. So in this language of spirituality class, they would ask, um, do you believe that one of the elders who had taught at Harvard, he was a uh, indigenous uh, uh, studies, ethnic studies person from Harvard. He asked the question of this group of, of uh, in the Bohemian dialogue. I said, uh, do you believe in the separation of church and state? <laughs> and of course, of course, all the indigenous people said, no, you can't separate that. <laughs> right, right. And, and, and quantum physics says, well, you can be in two places at once. You don't have to separate at all. And Warfield Lincoln said, well, you just say what it is you want to say. If you want to make your world that, you make your world that. So it was really empowering to hear these three different ways of approaching the world. So uh, to get back to an earlier question, you asked uh, about uh, what, what sort of guided me away from Christianity. And I remember going to an ayahuasca um, uh, uh, session, session. And uh, uh, I love what they say, when, when, the, when the, the full experience comes on, they call it the bodicheta, which is this beautiful Portuguese word, uh, Brazilian. Oh my gosh, the bodicheta, it sounds like it. It's just it's like this overwhelming alteration of your spirit, right? you feel altered. And so uh, when the bodicheta comes on, you know, you're really taken. And uh, the Udave people would always say, ask a question before every session. So I asked the question, you know, uh, about is this practice for me? This this uh, I, vegetal. I like some things and I don't like some things. You know, so is it for me? And I remember I had this urge to get up. And in Uruve uh, in the session, they they don't like you to leave or get up uh, without permission of the mestre. So you ask permission before you leave. But I didn't. I didn't feel like I wanted to ask permission. I just wanted to get outside. And I walked outside because I was inside and I didn't want to be inside yes. under this influence because I had been altered and I love it when I'm in this self-willed world where I am not in control. It's fascinating. This world that works, but in a completely mysterious way. So I walked outside and I saw three trees in a little grove, three um, junipers, and one was bigger than the other two. And I really felt a relationship. It was almost like they were speaking to me. And I, and I didn't, wasn't words, but I could understand a relationship and a teaching. And I realized I didn't really want to be inside there. I wanted to be out here. And I didn't really want to be part of this group again. I had such bad luck being part of a group. I wanted to find spirituality in my own path, in my own way. Sure. But while paying attention to everyone and honoring Udave 
Christianity, honoring everyone because everyone has, has wonderful and powerful teachings. It's just, for me, the uh, Roman Catholic system in this country, um, I wasn't happy with, and I'm yes. certainly not happy with the Archdiocese of San Francisco, which I track even today. So, <laughs> so just that, not just, that experience, it was kind of like that building represented Christianity and all those other things to you. It was the past. You just realized, I really yes, wanted to move on. Ready to move I'm ready to move into another world. So Art, do you, um, I've always understood and from, from many of the, inter, some of the interviews I've done, one of the beautiful things about um, psilocybin and probably the other um, entheogens is that it actually rewires the brain. Michael <laughs> Pollan talks about this. So it's not like, well, I'm, I'm playing specifically, let's talk about an antidepressant like Prozac or something where it makes a person feel better for a little while, but it, it doesn't do anything long-term unless you keep taking it. And even then it, it, it stops working sometimes. But this actually, I think a fabulous fun guy, which you're in the documentary, everybody should watch that this actually rewires and changes your thinking. Can you just elaborate on that? Has, has, that, has it done that to you? Well, we, <laughs> it's, that's a tricky question. Uh, uh, you know, uh, Leary and uh, Ramdas and a lot of people, I was part of the Rainbow Gathering. I met, uh, I like to say two of my four wives at the Rainbow Gathering. <laughs> and I, 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 uh, Ramdas would, would serve breakfast at, at those things. Uh, and, the, the whole idea that taking entheogens was like a door opening into a new world. And that was the way we looked at it. That was the way mm, the promoters of, of the psychedelic revolution presented it. And there's some truth to it and then there's some falsehood to it. So you've got to be careful like everything in life. Um, there was a downside, a dark side, a shadow side, but there was also a wonderful, powerful upside for me. The 60s were a beautiful thing when people, I call myself a paleo hippie because I'm proud to be a hippie. <laughs> I know some people think it's like a, a, when you call someone a hippie, they think they're insulting them. I, I take it as a compliment. Yes. What a hippie to me was someone who broke with everything of the past. If you get to the heart of Christianity, I know some beautiful Christians. Some of the most beautiful Christians didn't go to church so much, but they had a, the Christians, they had a camp down here on the San Miguel River. And they didn't advertise, but they took in uh, orphans, unwed mothers, mm. people who in need, and, and they, they just took care of them. Yeah. Those were the real Christians. Yes, exactly. Those are the Christians that I like. Oh, I love that. They, they've, they've gotten to the, the center of the core of it. So those are the kinds of things that would happen. And I, would, I, I was always a promoter. Uh, and one of the things that, that, that I feel like I was able to help the Mushroom Festival was to imbue those hippie rainbow family, love energy, feelings, relationships into what was a scientific conference to begin with, right. which MAPS still is. Yes. And I still respect it greatly. Rick Doblin's a wonderful man. But what we have in Telluride is a hippie infused scientific experiment which is the beauty of it and is what we're trying to do that so many i interview is to well it's already being done the if you want to say pippy part or spiritual part interweaving with the scientific they have to 
go together in order to. So one of the, the last, one of the only things you can find online of Dolores LaChapelle's is uh, her essay on ritual. She was a very big in getting people to take part in rituals. What rituals did was to take you out of your normal world, to take you out of those rigorous ego structures we built up, take you out of the society and put you into a, a, an altered space where you did things that were very, very different from what you normally do. So what do we do at Telluride? We take people on a parade where we dress up like a different kingdom, not even our own genus, not even our same. We dress up like mushrooms. We proclaim our love for mushrooms by marching and dancing and singing and having a great time, a party on the street. That's a ritual, yes. very powerful because it isn't sacred. It's, it's just, it's, it's, it's every day, it's party, it's simple. But if you wanna go deep, it's got all those deep levels because mushroom hunting is a hunter-gatherer activity. It's something we've been doing as a species for two or three hundred thousand years. Two or three hundred thousand years. We, as a species, have been doing hunting gathering. And so mushroom gathering and collecting is just that. So when you're honoring the mushroom, when you're honoring uh, the parade, you're, you're going back deep into your roots as human beings. Yes. And you can understand that, or you can just have a party. Either way is okay. Right. Either way is fine. Either way is fine. Yeah, it's all great. <laughs> uh, a couple of times we've had, uh, uh, we used to have a tradition of a, of a, uh, a little um, honey, honey bear full of uh, honey uh, inf infused with mushrooms. And it, uh, one of the uh, characters who was a deer who's gone now, but he used to, a great guy, would go around douse, dosing people at, in the party as they're, as, they're hike, as they're marching down Main Street. We had one time we had Paul Stamets handing out Ling Chi tea, which is, which is a, a longev longevity tea. I mean, we've had, we had Gary Linkoff passing out uh, brownies uh, right. on, on Main Street. I mean, we have had all kinds of things happen within that ritual, some of them hilarious, some of them funny, a lot of them illegal, but most of them legal, most <laughs> right, of them right. just fun. And it's, it's not like this is a hippie crazed uh, young people only. It's like elders, seniors, young kids, everybody's having a great time dressing up, celebrating. We love dressing up, we love celebrating. The kids get into it, the parents, there's dancers, there's people on stilts. It's a huge, wonderful ritual. Right, right. Yes, I love, I love the word ritual and rituals that I've learned so much about um, in shamanism. I think they're so important for, for the very young. It's so important for all of us. Well, that's why, you know, poetry, speaking, being able to tell a story. So poetry comes from storytelling. Dolores' whole point was that she did a, a massive book, a third of it, notes, footnotes, an incredible independent scholar. She was uh, not associated with any um, academy. So uh, her work was uh, uneven and wasn't edited as well as it could have been. And so uh, it's not as all well respected, but it's incredibly researched. And she, pulled, she was a big thinker. She pulled ideas from lots of places and put them together rather than focusing on one little discipline. Mm -hmm. And so that big embrace of hers was really powerful for a lot of us. She analyzed well, how we've gotten into this place of uh, uh, ecocide, really, we're, we're killing ourselves, we're, we're putting ourselves at, at risk with, with everything we do. 
hopefully we're going to bounce out of it. But the climate is suggesting that, you know, we've already tipped the scale a bit heavy already. So she talks about how we got into this predicament. She talks about societies that didn't get into that predicament. And then she talks about seven pathways that she identifies on how to move forward to get ourselves back in touch so that we're balanced again. The Hopi call us Kayana Scotsi, we're out of balance. The Reggio brothers have a great film in Santa Fe. If you've never seen it, I highly recommend. There's three of them, but Kayana Scotsi is easily the most powerful. A Hopi word meaning out of balance. Right. You know, which well, is that's what, the medicine wheel, that, right? That's it. It's about yes. you know, staying in balance. I asked one time I asked, I was uh, I was an anti-nuclear activist when I came here from California and I bought my house from a uranium miner. So I've been uh, anti-nuclear for uh, all my life. And uh, it was really funny. I went to a conference and I asked these uh, young sisters, I said, uh, they were indigenous. I said, uh, um, what's this beauty way? Everybody's always talking about the beauty way. What is that? And this young gal, she knelt down on the ground and drew a circle in, in the dust. And I'm like, oh my God, I love it already. I Whatever she says. Absolutely. <laughs> it was, it was, she didn't say anything, just drew a circle to start with. Then she said, inside that circle is all the light. And I thought, oh my God, I can see the pyramids already. I, all my new age <laughs> friends, they're going to be right in the middle, the center. Yeah. She said, and outside of that circle is all of the dark. She said, the beauty way is walking that line between the light and the dark. Oh my God. <laughs> well, I think that's a great way to, to end this interview. Wow. Um, wow. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been, it's just been an honor to have you here. And an honor to speak with you, Laura. Yes, yes. And I'm really looking forward to the Mushroom Festival. Oh, it'll be fun. <laughs> I want to have a, I want to have a, a marching band this year again. We used to have yeah. them, so. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, thank you so much. And you have a great evening. And um, I'm sure we'll talk soon. Sounds or we're going to have dinner together. So. That sounds good. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Next week, I have a very special, it's not an interview, it, I am going to read um, diary entries from the war diaries. My um, friends, Paul and Amber, I've never met them personally, but I've become friends with them over the Science and Medical Network, and they live in Poland, and they have 35 guests that are living with them now from the Ukraine. They are writing war diaries about their experience and they are just amazing. So I'm going to be sharing those over the next few, over the next few weeks. I've gotten permission from them. So I hope you'll, you'll join to listen in. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening in today. If you want to learn more about the show, you can find us at interviewswithinnocence.com and on Facebook or Instagram at interviewswithinnocence. Please write me a message. Tell me what you liked and let me know what else you would like to hear. I would love to hear from you. And if you liked what you heard, please leave us an iTunes rating and review. It helps other listeners find the show. Thank you. Thank you.